Yo, you guys. I am casting a pod. This is Ozymandias with your host, Marcus T. So, cutting right to the chase, this is a podcast about monuments. Uh, Monuments are in the news right now. Monuments are things that we see every single day and probably walk by without really thinking about them. Uh, Some are made for incredibly amazing people. Some have been passed down through history to us, uh, and we are forced to deal with them. So this is a history podcast dealing with sometimes the uncomfortable and always the historical. Welcome to Ozymandias. That's right. We will be starting the Ozymandias podcast series with a close look at the infamous Christopher Columbus. Just a few days ago, in the heart of the fall of many monuments across the United States, the city of San Francisco knocked Christopher Columbus off of his pedestal before demonstrators were able to do so. And for good reason. I mean, this thing was massive. We're talking four and a half thousand pounds, 25 to 27 feet tall on top of a massive, massive concrete pallet. This guy, if he was pulled down, um, you know, by, by, by your, your just average demonstrators that are trying to make their voices heard and, and, and be represented in 2020, this was going to be a cause for concern, and, and there was for sure a safety concern in mind here. And the city of San Francisco got ahead of it. So kudos to San Francisco for, for doing that. Um, this thing was massive. Who made this thing? We're looking at Count Vittorio de Colbertando. I'm just going to have to go with Stephen Colbert on this one, guys. I'm not actually sure how to pronounce his name. But he installed and dedicated this statue to the city of San Francisco in 1957. It was gifted by the Columbus Monument Committee uh, from the city of Genoa and the Marini family in Italy. The coronation of this Christopher Columbus statue came along with a handwritten note from the Pope to the mayor of San Francisco. So let's take a step back. What else is happening in 1957? Within a month of Christopher Columbus going up to his summit in San Francisco, Sputnik 2 carries a dog into orbit. Uh, nice job, Russia, with your early first quarter space race win. We'll see how the rest of the game plays out for you. President Eisenhower, he's announcing his Monroe Doctrine of his time. Uh, he went with the name the Eisenhower Doctrine, basically meaning similar to the Monroe Doctrine, but what we're looking at here is anywhere internationally where there is communism, America can intervene. Welcome to the global era of um, intervention and war that the United States is still in. Thank you, uh, Ike. Thinking about 1957, so Christopher Columbus, he went up on October 12th, 1957, 
just a few months earlier in May, May 17, 1957, 25,000 demonstrators were gathering at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., almost like an obelisk to obelisk connection from the Lincoln Memorial to Coit Tower here in San Francisco from sea to shining sea. For this event, it was the prayer pilgrimage for freedom. Three hours of just excellent vibes, spirituals, songs, and speeches, and just overall great energy celebrating America and the march to freedom, and and also protest and urging of the federal government to fulfill the three-year-old Brown versus Board of Education decision. Supreme Court, Brown versus Board of Education, three years later, we are at the Lincoln Memorial begging the government to fulfill that, that order. The last speech of the day was reserved for Martin Luther King's famous Give Us the Ballot Oration. During this speech, we're talking about voting rights and how they are essential to the goal of integration and freedom and not to become the enemy uh, that which we are fighting against. So from Sea to Shining Sea in 1957, we have to think about in this era of mass hysteria with communism, East versus West, us versus them, Samuel Huntington is 40 years away from articulating just how divided this was. And at the time, uh, America was picking that fight. We are looking at our history in opposition to the history of the other. And in symbolism and in structure and in statue, we are propping up what is the American dream as high as we can so that it represents and stands out and is the symbol on the city of the hill. Uh, and, and basically the same political speak that we're going to hear from 1957 on to today. So thinking about that, let's flash forward a little bit to 2020 to our time. A comment from the city supervisor, Aaron Peskin, who I actually know and, and had a, a, a campaign sign in my window for once upon a time, uh, Aaron Peskin came out with this quote after the, the toppling of the Christopher Columbus statue. At a great time of great unrest and deep reflection by our country, we, the city of San Francisco, recognize the pain and oppression that Christopher Columbus represents to many. We believe through public art we can and should honor the heritage of all of our people including our Italian-American community, but in doing so, we should choose symbols that unify us, Aaron Peskin said in a statement. So coming off of the heels of 1957, global kind of us versus them, and the desire for unity from America in that representation, it's interesting that in the fall of the statue from 1957 to today, from the gathering of all of the folks together at the Prayer of Pilgrimage for Freedom, uh, headlined by Martin Luther King, who just absolutely knocked it out of the park with that last, with that last uh, uh, speech, you can't help but to see the connection in what Aaron Peskin is asking for 
symbols that unify us and what it means in that the symbols from 1957 are not the symbols that are unifying us today. Um, let's dig a little bit more into that and unearth a few of these histories that are a little bit uncomfortable to dig into, but it's important just so that we know what we're dealing with with Christopher Columbus. So our guy Chris, he is born in 1451. And according to one of the elder historian statesmen that I could find online, probably a guy in his 90s, he, with one bullet point, gave Christopher Columbus the accolade, one of the world's best dead reckoning sailors in recorded history, meaning he didn't use a compass. If Christopher Columbus's history was left at that, we could keep his statue. Uh, it is not. So let's just wind back the clock a smidge and kind of get us up to the story of his life. So Christopher Columbus, he's a sailor. He pitches, think like startup, going to the venture capitalists, going to Sand Hill. In this instance, it's King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. So here comes Christopher Columbus, and he's got a startup idea, and he wants to find a trade route to India for trade and for capitalism to continue to grow and to prosper, to connect the markets of India with the markets of Europe. Great startup idea. The venture capitalists of the crown of Spain were, they were stoked. They were excited. So the venture capital is amassed. The Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria, they start up. They're starting up. Just like most startups we know and love, uh, Chris was pretty quick on the trigger for product market fit. So upon landing in the Bahamas, so convinced that he had landed in India, that's the product market fit joke, he had no idea where he was, uh, he established the colonies in what are now Haiti and the Dominican Republic. He immediately got back in the boat, went back to the crown and said, look, you guys, I did it, I made it, and had to explain A, not India. B, there's no money really of any interest. And C, I'm asking for another round of investment. Classic startup journey, Christopher Columbus. That's really where the jokes end and the comedy and levity can, can really stop. Because on his return trip, trip two, uh, he enslaved the people of Haiti and the Dominican Republic, who he had just recently met and who he had just recently called Indians. And he forced them uh, at gunpoint and through a whole heck of a lot of terrible things to dig for jewels and gold uh, to take back to Europe, which were not, were not there, which were not there to be found. Um, history books will th say things like this about Christopher Columbus, depending on who you read. Uh, things such as conditions were poor. Yeah, conditions were poor in the 1490s. If the Spanish crown, you know, the folks who are, you know, in charge of the Inquisition and, you know, the folks that were in charge of the diaspora, like removing people of Jewish ancestry from their homeland, like if they're saying uh, and noting and putting down in their history books that Christopher Columbus is a bad guy, you know, he is doing some terrible stuff in uh, the islands that he's discovering or, or stumbling across. Um, so he comes back after trip number two, after enslaving the number of peoples that he did, 
and raises funds again for trip number three, which he lands on Venezuela. Fortunately, before he was able to do to Venezuela what he was doing in Haiti and the Dominican Republic, uh, the Spanish crown had second thoughts and they wised up to the righteous kind of idea of history and they recalled him, called him home, removing his titles, taking his wealth, and uh, really he ended up the rest of his life kind of like a pauper, like in shame, like total scrub. Um, he spent the final years of his life in Spain resentful and upset. Oh my gosh, worries me. Like, wasn't able to whatever get all the fame and honor that I deserve for doing these great things. Um, and many, many historians believe that he went to his grave believing that he actually did find uh, India. What an idiot. Uh, some numbers for our friends who need data to learn things. Population figures from 500, 600 years ago are, um, are going to be up for debate. So just anytime you hear numbers in history, just know like well, there is a margin of error. But what I'll share here is uh, from an article that I saw and it looked fairly reputable between the years of 1494 and 1496, uh, that's just a two-year period. What we're looking at, Hispaniola, so we're looking at the Dominican Republic and Haiti. Um, Christopher Columbus grew those colonies to about 300,000 inhabitants. And uh, basically, that's what was already there. And in two years of him being in charge a third of the population died. And then, <laughs> from the two-thirds remaining, half then committed mass suicide. In 1508, the population was down to 60,000 people. By 1548, within 100 years, this community of 300,000 people that had been living on these two islands for generations was estimated to be only 500 people remaining. How in the heck did Christopher Columbus, who was just absolutely dragged through glass by his own crown, Ferdinand and Isabella, at the end of the at the end of the century, he's in disgust, lying in bed, dying alone, no idea of what he'll become. Ferdinand and Isabella, the two on top of the Spanish Inquisition, they know that he's so bad. How does this guy make a comeback in USA history? Flashing on forward from just a terrible part of history, the 1490s, and everything that Christopher Columbus touched just uh, ending terribly. Flashing forward to a more uh, uplifting time, the Great Depression in the United States. Why did FDR create, from blue and from scratch, so many holidays? Bringing America together, creating a national identity, creating a national and historical perspective of our time and place, and the hard work that we've done, and the path that we are going. We're thinking about things like Thanksgiving being a part of the American story, thinking about things like Christopher Columbus Day and the finding and discovery of 
America, by way of Christopher Columbus, the old world discovering the new and being born anew, our country that is still so young with still so much more work to be done, you can just hear FDR hearing the pitch from his team in the middle of some of the darkest days of months worth of banks being closed. We should bring America back. How about a good founding story and some rebranding? Big retweet from the man in the big chair. Let's do it. Christopher Columbus, you are back in the game. So if you're rolling over in your grave, 1930, 1937, FDR, he's probably your guy. He's probably your only guy. Um, Also interesting is just all the politics that are happening at the time. FDR, he's trying to figure out how he's going to get in. Uh, and maintain the power that he has. He's looking at the Supreme Court. He's looking at the New Deal. And he's looking at uh, influential lobbyists, the Knights of Columbus. They are an Italian kind of lobbying group within the United States. They're a fraternal organization and influential Catholics. They are extremely close to the action with FDR, and they're able to get Columbus Day as a writer into this national kind of identity um, story. Here are a few moments from FDR's kind of speech while he is addressing, you know, via fireside chat through the radio. If it comes through the radio, it must be true. You know, it's FDR telling us that this is how America was founded. That's how our history has been uh, apparently unwinding ever since. But here's what FDR said. This year, when we contemplate the estate to which the world has been brought by destructive forces, with lawlessness and wanton power ravaging an older civilization, and with our own republic girding itself for the defense of its institutions, we can revitalize our faith and renew our courage by a recollection of the triumph of Columbus after a period of grievous trial. You can see what he's doing, right? Uh with a a retrospective FDR, not so subtle. The promise which Columbus's discovery gave to the world of a new beginning in the march of human progress has been in process of fulfillment for four centuries. Our task is now to make strong our conviction that in spite of setbacks, that process will go on toward fulfillment. I mean, Just a few years earlier, Calvin Coolidge in 1925, so really only 12 years earlier, he is at the Minnesota State Fair as president, and he is making the case to the American public live prior to the way that technology was used by FDR, but Calvin Coolidge was pushing for Leif Erikson, for Leif Erikson Day, the Viking, the discoverer of America, and he has cited the actual historical sources of Newt Jesert and Ludwig Hechtoen, that that is America's founding person. Of course, neither of them are America's founding person. There were people already here, living here happily, doing great. They're great. So we have FDR to thank for this. And what I want to come back to similar within FDR's comment similar to Calvin Coolidge's comment, and all the way down the line uh, to 1957, 
Martin Luther King, at the Lincoln Memorial, and even all the way further through history to 2020 with the toppling of the Christopher Columbus statue in San Francisco. The question that I want everyone to come away from this conversation is not, is Christopher Columbus good or bad? I think I've made my point and my comment on that quite clear. But the question is deeper and with a tad more nuance required. With the removal of Christopher Columbus for something new, and that argument is there, do we also miss the story of our young and developing and imperfect countries fight for a unifying national vision that tells a story about where we've come, who we are, and where we're going. What is true about American history is is that it is pretty ugly. But what is beautiful and aligned with the movement in 2020 and aligned with 1957 and aligned with God love him even though he was pretty wrong on this one, FDR as well, is that there is a need in America for a national unity that tells this story. And I wonder with the removal of Christopher Columbus in such a massive way, if there will be a historical disservice to the generations to come who did not have this challenge in their history books of asking themselves, does this guy and his facts, not what I'm told, but do his facts align with the reality that I am living in? And if those facts do not, what can I learn from the way that different generations of Americans have used his story to prop up different narratives, to be self-serving? Christopher Columbus's story died in Spain, in disgrace. America's story of Christopher Columbus from 1937 to today has been one of skepticism, debate, discussion, and factual history in opposition to a national identity that was propagated to us from our elected officials. A monument to that healthy skepticism while be it in and under the name of Christopher Columbus, tells a different story than just a statue who is good or of a statue who is bad. So I will leave you guys with this from <laughs> Piercy <laughs> Shelley. Uh, that's the title of the podcast, Ozymandias. I really hope that you have enjoyed this. If you liked it, please give me a subscribe in And however you listened to this, please let the system know that you enjoyed it. That will help me continue to grow and to know that this is something that you find valuable. And with that, these final words, my name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. See you on the next one.